Uh, let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray in your mercy we would know the comfort and the instruction of your word today uh, and that through your word we would be strengthened in our trust in our Lord Jesus for life and equipped to live and think as his followers. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, many of you, many of us, uh, know Matt and Kate Finnicum and their children, Bethany, Chloe and Amos, and know that after years of preparation, while members of our church, they were sent out from us to serve with the mission agency CMS amongst the Indigenous people of Groot Island. And now you also know that on Monday, CMS contacted Andy with that disturbing news that they'd been involved in a car accident with a kangaroo in South Australia. And that while the children were unharmed, Matt was injured and Kate was seriously injured. And as you heard, Matt's recovering well, uh, but Kate has serious spinal injuries that look like being of an enduring nature. Now, this distressing news was passed on to you, many of you, on Monday uh, through the Friday news and prayer networks. And it was pretty shocking, wasn't it? Felt so jarring, so out of place with our Christmas festivities. I heard it while listening to the cricket, looking for, like many of you, I suspect, a little break from the, uh, the pressures of an intense year, uh, a little bit of normality and the force of the not-rightness of this. This lovely, faithful family doing good work for the Lord, caught up in this seemingly random tragedy that will change their lives forever, swept over me. The grief of it is almost overwhelming. What about you when you heard, when you opened and read that email? Or perhaps this morning is the first you've heard of it in that announcement from Andy. You came to church for encouragement for the new year to be told that faithful believers who have given their lives to help others be followers of Jesus have suffered this serious and life-changing accident. It's disturbing, unsettling at so many levels, leaving us both grieved and anxious for them, for what we expect to be the difficult days, months and years ahead. So how as believers in Jesus are we to think about what has happened, how respond? Now I've been using we and will continue to do so as I think that what I'll say, which is the fruit of my engagement with the news in the light of scripture, contains much that is useful and right for all believers as believers. But there's also a sense in which each of us will respond individually and our responses will vary depending on how well we knew them, how engaged we are with their work, how close our children are to theirs, our own personalities, how what's happened to them resonates with experiences we have had. I'm conscious that there'll be many individual responses and I hope you will make space and time to hear and comfort and encourage each other in your own responses. But let me suggest four things that will be helpful to each of us 
as we engage with this. Firstly, we turn to Jesus. Secondly, we battle the ghosts of wrong ideas. Thirdly, we hear what Jesus says to the observers in the garden. And lastly, we take to heart our own mortality and frailty. So firstly... Ah, good. Firstly, we turn to Jesus. As well as being our living saviour and good shepherd who's promised to be with us always, the author of Hebrews talks about our Lord Jesus as the founder and perfecter of our faith, the pioneer of our faith, that is, the one who shows us the way, is the prototype of what it is to live trusting and obeying God our Father. As we're dismayed and anxious about the difficult time ahead for Matt and Kate, we can turn to the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he contemplates the difficult time of suffering ahead for him, as he contemplates draining the cup of God's wrath in our place on the cross. We can turn to his prayer there and the relationship with God which informed it. In the Gospel story, it's now just hours away from his arrest, trial and execution. Having shared the Passover meal with his disciples, the Last Supper at which he'd spoken of his death, our Lord now retires to pray, taking with him his closest companions, Peter, James and John. And it says he is disturbed and distressed by what is to come deeply distressed and troubled. <coughs> I am deeply grieved to the point of death, he says. Anticipation of the coming trial brings a sorrow so great that, as it were, it sucks the life out of him. Things, there are things, you see, so awful, so overwhelming, that they will and should distress and grieve us, uncomfortable as that is. The model Christian life is not one of imperturbability, of seeming to take it all in our stride, going through life with a calm sereneness, insulated by our heavenly mindedness from the griefs and trials of this world, from being grieved and unsettled. That's a kind of idol of self-protectiveness, but it's not the Christian life. It is not the presence of grief that is the issue, but what we do with it when it arrives. And in his sorrow and distress, our Lord is brought by this sorrow to his knees in prayer. He went a little further, fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Sorrow and distress brought our Lord to his knees in prayer and it should bring us to our knees in prayer, should find expression in turning to our God. But how should we pray? Often questions are raised about this. After all, we have been given great promises in prayer, haven't we? Truly I tell you, says our Lord, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you tell this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. 
And if you believe, you'll receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Is, as some claim from this verse, faithful prayer demanding God do what we want and believing it will happen as we ask if we've got enough faith? Or is there more to it? As 1 John 5 suggests, this is the confidence we have before him if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. How should we pray? Well, how does Jesus pray when greatly distressed by the suffering he sees before him? He said, Abba, Father. Firstly, Jesus prays to his Father. Jesus prays in the context of an assured relationship in which he knows he is loved. In the hours before this prayer, he's actually just prayed, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Jesus prays in the garden knowing he is the loved son of the Father from eternity. And wonderfully, believers can pray in our distress knowing we are also loved children of our Father, trusting in Jesus. We have been given the spirit of Jesus and brought to share in the Son's relationship with the Father. As you heard, Paul writes to us, believers in Jesus, and says you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We have an assured relationship where we can cry to the Father as Jesus did, Abba, Father. And it is assured not because we're perfect, have got everything right in our living or in our understanding, but because it is a gift of grace given to us because God in his love sent his son to die for us, as you heard, while we were still sinners, rebels against God. And by that death, the Lord Jesus has turned aside God's right, just, holy wrath from our sin so that by faith we now live as his justified people at peace with him, enjoying every day his grace. Now Paul is clear, verse 17, that this relationship is not a guarantee of freedom from suffering. It says, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him. This relationship is actually a guarantee of sharing in the son's sufferings in this world the suffering of living faithful lives like the sons in a world in rebellion to its creator. But by God's grace, we too, like our Lord, can cry, Abba, Father, can in our distress pray as loved children with the conviction that Matt and Kate, like all believers, are God's loved children too. That conviction of being loved is not dependent on being spared suffering. It depends on the gospel conviction, the spirit-given conviction that Christ has died for us. And as loved children, 
We know our Father, again, as you heard in Romans, has a goal for us, a certain one for all his children, including Matt and Kate, that he works all things so that we are conformed in this life and the next to the image of his Son, conformed in character and in glory. And as Christ, the Son's suffering was purposeful, the road to his glorification So our suffering is purposeful for us, even if we cannot discern the exact purpose of any particular event. In his distress, Jesus prays as a loved son of the Father. In our distress, believers in Jesus pray to our Father as God's loved children. And as he prays, the Lord Jesus expresses his confidence in God, in God's revelation of himself. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. This is what Jesus himself has taught. It's what he said to his disciples. With man, it's impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God that our God, the living God, is almighty. The God for whom nothing he wills is impossible is a conviction deeply rooted in God's words and deeds in Scripture. In the Old Testament, in the account of creation where he creates all things by his word, in the birth of Isaac to an old and barren Sarah, in the Exodus, in the return from Exodus, as the psalmist says, our God is in heaven and he does whatever pleases him and that almighty power is seen in Jesus ministry in his birth where the angel said to Mary when announcing the virgin birth nothing will be impossible to God in his ministry in his saving through his death on the cross in his resurrection the contemplation of his suffering does not change for Jesus who God is the truth of God's not conditional upon God doing what upon is not conditional upon God doing what we want, as if God's almightiness depends on making uh, sorry, uh, sorry the truth of God is not conditional upon God doing what Jesus wants, as if God's almightiness depends on making his suffering disappear. That our God is almighty is the foundation of his prayer, his presupposition, not the conclusion from his prayer being answered in the way he wants. It's the presupposition of our prayers too. We pray confident in God's revelation of himself, confident in what our Lord has taught us of his Father, that all things are possible for him that not a sparrow falls to the ground but by his will and even the hairs of our head are numbered that he knows us and is in charge of the details of our lives of what befalls us and yes that we are loved for Jesus sake but praying confessing the truth of God's revelation of himself also means we pray knowing we are not God that he is incomparably greater than us in power, in wisdom and in love, that as Isaiah said and as Andy reminded us of, my thoughts, says God, are not your thoughts, 
Your ways are not my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's ways higher than our ways. God's thoughts than our thoughts. Our Lord prays to the Father. He prays confident in God's revelation of himself. And yes, he prays honestly, laying before the Father what he desires, praying that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Our Lord is fully human and it is human and right to want to be spared suffering. And he knows the content of the cup he is yet to drink. There's more than physical pain involved. This is the cup of God's holy wrath against sin, which he who has only ever known the Father's love will drain in our place to the full. It is a terrible thing to contemplate. And so he asks what he desires. Take this cup away from me. We can ask for what we desire. We know what we want for the Vinicums, what we want with all our heart. We want them to be well, for Kate to walk out of hospital, for the children to have a mother who can embrace and care for them, that they be spared the grief and difficulty of an enduring spinal injury. We know what we want and we should lay our longing before our Father as our Lord Jesus did. But Jesus' prayer does not end there, and ours cannot. He knows that there is something he wants more because he trusts his Father. Nevertheless, he says, not what I will, but what you will. Now that verse speaks of the seriousness of our sin, that there's no other way than the death of the loved son to deal with it, to save us. But what I want us to see is the humility of Jesus' prayer. Jesus knew the Father's will and he is humbling himself to commit again to it. He entrusts himself into the Father's hands, knowing that it will be pain and suffering because he loves and trusts the Father, is confident in his Father's might and wisdom and love for him. Here we see what it is to be the Son of God, as Paul says in Philippians 2, to humble oneself to do the Father's will as the path to exaltation. And from the Son we learn what it is to be a child of God, it is not to dictate to God, but to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand and seek his will in all circumstances because coming to know God in Jesus through his coming and death and resurrection, we also love and trust the Father. We also are confident in his might and wisdom and love for us. But whereas Jesus said, not what I will, but what you will, knowing full well the Father's will, we say conscious most of the time that we do not know his will in detail for any of us. Yes, we know what's promised us, resurrection. We know the goal being worked in all things, conformity to Christ's image. We are confident of these because our God is faithful. But we don't know how our Father in his wisdom 
will work in the lives of any of us to get each of us to that goal. We don't know the details of the future he has planned for any of us, of the good works he's prepared for us to bring him glory. We don't know those things most of the time. We don't know what he alone knows. But we do know his ways are not our ways, that we cannot deduce from what we want, the way we would do things, what God wills. That's a fundamental lesson of being a Christian, isn't it? Because the cross teaches us that his ways are not our ways. Until he opens our eyes, the cross of Jesus is just foolishness to us. I think again, Paul's imprisonment teaches me that. Would you think the best way for the Apostle Paul to serve Christ is rotting in a Roman jail for years? But that's what happens to him. Oh, we can think of many stories. Just one. Take the story of Jim Elliot. You can Google it. So zealous, so influential. Revived missions, in a sense, in America. Would you have thought it right to have him killed by the Indians to whom he was preaching the gospel right at the beginning before he'd even got an opportunity to do it? And in all we see, In all these things, we see not only that his ways are different from our ways, they are better, better by far. We trust our Father and lay our desires before him, but we don't dictate to him. And as God's children, trusting him, his might, his wisdom and love, and knowing what he wills for us is best, will be for our salvation and his glory. In our ignorance, we rightly pray, not what I will, but what you will. We pray your will be done. And that's actually how we understand those promises in 1 John and Matthew, promises that give us great confidence in our requests. As 1 John says, that confidence comes from knowing God's will, if we ask anything according to his will. And what you must believe in Matthew 21 to pray with confidence is that what you are seeking is the Father's will, not your own imagination. For faithful prayer is not demanding from God what we want, thinking that faith is somehow a way of bending the almighty God to our will. That would be awful. Faithful prayer is seeking from him what he has promised. And that is good because in all circumstances, he has promised to be our good father, working our good, and we can ask that of him always. Oh, and yes, notice like Paul dealing with his thorn in the flesh. Our Lord prays three times, three times and then leaves. He knows he's been hurt, his grief and anguish known to the Father. He prays and then continues to obediently do the Father's will. In our distress, we turn to Christ and learn from him to entrust ourselves and those we love into our almighty Father's hands. And yes, we need to battle ghosts of wrong ideas. I say ideas, and there are many of them, but I'm just going to focus on one. And I say ghosts 
because these are wrong ways of thinking that many of us have already rejected and know not to be true, but which keep creeping into our heads or are suggested by well-meaning friends. The one I want to focus on is that somehow believers should be spared or can cause ourselves to be spared if we're faithful enough the consequences of the fall, of living in a fallen world. Because that's what Matt and Kate are enduring. Once you have roads into an Australian countryside heavily populated by kangaroos and you're travelling long distances on those roads that are not always good, being hit by kangaroos and some being injured in that interaction is just part of living in our fallen world, in our age. Now, because recognising that doesn't mean you don't try and address the dangers, improve the roads, work out how to deter kangaroos, just as, you know, recognising that illness is part of living in a fallen world doesn't mean you don't try and find the causes of illness. But it is part of living in a fallen world and that is the context in which we all live out our lives of faith. It's not something that our faith causes us to escape from. But modern Christians often struggle with accepting that. We can accept suffering directly related to our profession as believers, suffering for the gospel. Oh, that makes sense to us. But suffering in the same way as others around us do, we think it should be different from us. So a boat accident travelling between Groot and Bickerton Island to attend a Bible camp, that would somehow be easier to accept, wouldn't it? than a car accident returning from a family Christmas function. That doesn't seem to have a place in our thinking of what should happen to faithful Christians. We can think like that. In fact, encouraged to think like that, not only by false prosperity teachers, but by our culture, which sees no place for suffering and so downplays its presence as a feature of ordinary human existence. But suffering is a feature of a fallen world and believers are not spared the sufferings of this age. Believers will share in the sufferings of this age as long as we're in our bodies, the mortal bodies we've inherited from Adam. And we know that in our own congregation, don't we? We experience miscarriages, infertility, mental illness, cancer, long COVID. And we will all die unless the Lord returns first. All part of the sufferings of this age, of living in this body we have from Adam. We are not exempt. We know this. And it's not just a rationalisation of our little faith, as health and wealth preachers claim. These sufferings are seen to be the sufferings of believers in Scripture. Consider what we heard in Romans 8. Oh, if we suffer with him, and then verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. Paul speaks of the suffering of this present time, and that's not just suffering for the faith in the present time. It includes all suffering involved in living in this present age. It's part of the reason we long for the resurrection to be freed from this suffering, the suffering of this age. And look at what Paul goes on to mention in verse 35. Affliction, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger or the sword. 
Now, these were all experienced by Paul in his missionary endeavours, so he knows what he's talking about. But they are not exclusively experienced in the context of the work of the gospel. For example, many in Paul's congregations, just by living in the lower class, would experience famine and hunger, no nakedness and poverty, just by being the poor people they were. Affliction, in James's letter, is the experience of orphans and widows, not because they're believers, but because they're orphans and widows. Paul makes verses 38 to 39 of Romans 8 as comprehensive of all the experiences of life. He says, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. He makes it comprehensive because it is not just suffering for the gospel that can make us anxious and fearful, that can test our faith. Paul wants us to know that anything that can happen to us in this life, anything that can test our faith as sickness and unexpected injury do, is included in the things that cannot exclude us from God's love. Believers share in the sufferings of this age. We're not excluded from them, but we're assured they will not separate us from God's love, not frustrate his good purpose for us. And they're not a contradiction to our faith, but the context in which we live out our faith, trusting God's promises as we wait for the day when we rise and suffering will be no more. The reality of our faith is not so much seen in what happens to us, but how we live through what happens to us, whether it's sickness or bad card accidents, the way we live through it, the way our faith is active in love in what happens to us. So we turn to Christ, we battle ghosts of wrong ideas and we hear what Jesus says to the observers. Jesus isn't the only one in the garden, is he? There were those witnessing his distress, Peter, James and John. And to them, after sharing his heart, I'm grieved to the point of death, he says, remain here and stay awake. What Jesus wants from the witnesses of his distress is that they remain, that they hang in with him, they stay awake. And stay awake's the word translated elsewhere as keep alert, that they're watchful. As we witness the distress of others, see their suffering, these words can be a guide for us. We should hang in there, stay engaged, and we should keep alert. Now, what is it for us to keep alert? Well, it means watchful prayer, persevering prayer, for both their enduring and changing needs, for the Vinicum's strength, their faithfulness, their knowing for themselves God's love as well as for the particular needs which will be many over the journey. Oh, yes, and being alert means staying, keeping on with watchful, persevering love. Now, that love starts at the moment with respecting their wishes about contact and so writing letters, not texting, delegating to Andy on behalf of us all, communication with the family. But this will be a long journey and we need to stay alert to their needs, material, emotional, 
financial, which will emerge and change over time. And that will mean we will need at the right time to get ourselves organised. Whether that's helping with meals or childminding or care, we don't know yet. But as a congregation, we have to commit to watchful love and persevering prayer for Matt and Kate, Bethany, Chloe and Amos and their wider families. We have to do that. But as we think about this, we need to hear Jesus. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Grief, our own or that of others, can be exhausting. We can lose focus over time. Oh, yeah, and all of us have a desire to live self-contained lives undisturbed by the needs of others where we can just get on with what we want. But Philippians says that we don't look only to our own interests but to the interests of others. Hear Jesus' words and recognise that we will have to encourage each other to hang in and stay alert so that we're there for the long journey. We turn to Christ, we battle ghosts of wrong ideas, we hear what Jesus said to the observers and finally each of us should take to heart our own frailty and mortality. I would be negligent if I did not say to you as we come into the new year, this is another reminder of the uncertainty and frailty of our lives of the uncertainty and frailty of your life. I mean, let's face it, I won't ask you to put up hands, but who of us who's driven in the bush haven't been hit by a kangaroo? I've been hit a couple of times and it could have ended so differently. Who hasn't had a near miss? Our lives can change or end in a second. And so I have to ask you, are you Ready, ready not just to die but to appear before the holy God for after death comes judgment. And there is only one way to be ready for that day, believing the gospel, God's message to the world, that the Lord Jesus has died for our sins and been raised from the dead. You see, not only does our Lord in the garden show us what it is to trust God, He shows us how right it is to trust God, doesn't he? The living God. Humbling himself in willing obedience to the Father to drink the cup, to die in our place for our sins. The Lord Jesus is now exalted as Lord, the one with authority to forgive and the judge, the only one with that authority, the one who can forgive you if you turn back and call upon him. Humbling yourself to call out to him and confess him, Lord, even if it looks like dying, trusting him, even if it looks like dying to running your own life, your own way, living to please yourself. Humbling yourself is the way to life and it is the only way to eternal life for only the risen Lord Jesus can give you the forgiveness you need. See, think about it. Do you think if it were possible for people to earn their way into eternal life by what they do or that another way for our sin to be dealt with could be found, that the Father who's loved his Son from eternity would have had him in that garden contemplating the horror 
of draining the cup of God's wrath against our sin. You won't be ready if you're relying on your good life. And do you think that God won't take your sin, your ignoring of him, your denial of him, your using his good gifts to defy him, he won't take your sin seriously, that he'll just say, ah, what's the matter? Who, Who can be bothered about that? Will he do that if he has thought it's so serious, your sin's so serious, that only the death of his son can turn aside his holy wrath at sin? There is only one way to be ready. And the gospel is clear as John says, the one who believes in the son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Unless Jesus drains the cup for you and gives you forgiveness, you have to face God's wrath alone. If you think you will not be ready, come and talk. But if you're a believer, confident of God's mercy on that day because you are trusting the Lord Jesus, as you think about this accident, ask yourself, as you may well have already done, Am I so convinced of my father's love because I'm convinced of his grace, convinced that he's given his son to die for me while I was still his enemy? Am I so convinced of his grace? Am I so convinced of his good purpose for me to raise me to glory with his son that I can trust and love and praise the God whose thoughts are not our thoughts and whose ways are not our ways. Do I so trust and love the Father that when I'm contemplating a distressing and uncertain future, I'll be able to entrust myself to a faithful God and pray as the Lord did in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. Now I know that many in this congregation have had to face that already for themselves. But it's something we should always ask ourselves because this is the prayer of God's children. And if you sense doubt about that, well, this is the year to renew yourself in the truths of the gospel, in reckoning again with what your sin deserved. It deserves God's holy wrath. Reckoning again in what God has done for you, in giving his son for you. And the love of that, oh yes, to renew yourself in his thankful, in thankfulness for his kindness and love to us, which is new every day. So pray. See what this age is like. Pray that you would know more of your hope, of God's power, of the love of Jesus so that when the day of trial comes, and in this age it will, you can be like the sun and humble yourself under God's hand, confident of his love and might, and that in due season, through trial, he will bring you to the glory he has promised to all his people, just as through the draining of that cup, our Lord is now exalted Overall, let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray for ourselves that we would, you would open our eyes 
to see the horror of our sin and the wonder of you giving your son to die for us while we were still sinners, that you would open our eyes to see his glory and you would move our hearts to know more and more of his love so that we would live as true children in this world, your children, who can entrust ourselves to you to do your will, knowing your might, your wisdom and your love for us in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.